0: Hey, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Alaa Atamna. He is a senior lecturer at Tel Aviv University, consultant for transplant infectious diseases at Balanson Hospital in Petartikva, Israel.
1: Welcome. Thank you, Swoyal, for having me. It's wonderful to be here. So I will introduce myself briefly. I am Alaa Tamna. I am an ID physician from Israel. I work in the Rabin Medical Center, Bellinson Hospital, which is a tertiary hospital located in Petah Tigva, Central Israel. And my hospital is affiliated to Tel Aviv University. So I began my medical career in Bellinson, where I did my internal medicine a residency, and after that, my fellowship in infectious diseases. And after I finished my fellowship in infectious diseases, I joined the ID unit in Bellinson in 2020. And since that time, I'm the ID consultant for the transplant department. So Bellinson is considered the largest transplant center in Israel. Uh, There there we do a different transplant types, including lungs and uh, heart transplantations. We do also liver, kidneys, and pancreas, small intestine, all type of uh, transplantations. And it is the only center that had a formal uh, fellowship program in transplant surgery. So fellow surgeons from all over the country, if they are interested in transplant surgery, they come to Bellenson to do their fellowship in transplant surgery because of the large volume of, of transplantation in in the center and uh, just a little bit about transplantations in Israel in general in the last years we we see an annual increase in transplantations especially in kidney it low live donor kidney donations as posted in the Jerusalem post in the last month Israel is stated as this is a report from the WHO that listed Israel as a world leader in live donor kidney donations and this owing to the altruistic donations you know person donates his kidney to another person who he had never met before so it's very exciting and regarding the transplant infectious diseases community in Israel unfortunately we have no formal community for transplant infectious diseases you know we are a small country with a few transplant centers so in each center we have a transplant infectious disease uh, or infectious disease physician who is interested in transplant infectious diseases so we know each other and we are we do a lot of collaborative work but i hope that in the future we can create or establish a Transplant Infectious Diseases Collaborative Group or hub. So I'm optimistic for that.
0: Fantastic. In uh, the U.S., we've been lucky in that the American Society of Transplantation a few years ago developed the community of practice, and that's allowed transplant infectious disease doctors and their friends to... um, have collaboration and i think that that model could work well in other places here in the uh, mid atlantic area of the united states we just created the mid-atlantic transplant id society and i'd say that we would love to have a, a sister or sibling organization like that in uh, yeah. in israel so hopefully uh something for the future thank you now um a in, in terms of the, uh, the medical system in, in Israel, it's quite different from the United States in that it is a, uh, a system that has uh, much more of universal coverage than, than we have here. And, and also in the United States, uh, much of the care is fee-for-service in that you go and you see the doctor and then uh, you or your insurance company usually pays the, the doctor. How does it work in, in, in Israel in terms of the patients? How do they end up at your hospital?
1: The transplanted patients you mean? Yes. So all all the logistics, how is going to is going in Israel? Everything is regarding the waiting lists, generation for transplanted or pre-transplanted patients are all arranged by the transplant nephrologists in case of kidney Mm -hmm. transplantation, in case if we have a candidate for Lung transplant implantation, there is a pulmonologist, to transplant pulmonologist to manage these patients. But as an infectious disease specialist, I in Israel, in my center specifically, I know I, I, the patient or encounter, encounter the patient after the transplantation. In the pre-transplant period, the patient encountered all the nephrologists or pulmonologists, pulmonologists. If there's any concern regarding a specific infectious disease issue, they will contact me. But I'm following the patient at, from time zero when once he get the transplant, and I follow him, follow up him. So this is the system is going my center. Got it. And
0: then, are there also uh, private consultations with transplant infectious disease doctors, or is it pretty much whoever uh, you're assigned to, and that's who you get?
1: Yeah, there's no any private ID, transplant, transplant consultation. All the consultations are in the frame of my daily practice and work in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So no private consultation. I consult all the patients indirectly by their pulmonologist or by their mm-hmm. nephrologist. And this is the system again.
0: And then increasingly in the United States, care has transferred to the outpatient, including specialty care. So for example, I have a clinic that that I do where I see patients after they leave the hospital, but still have ongoing transplant infectious disease issues. Is there an outpatient practice as well for uh, transplant infectious disease, or does it work through the their primary specialists?
1: Yeah. Also as an ID, a consultant. The patient in his outpatient journey after he leave the hospital, he will be in contact with the primary physician his primary physician, a pulmonologist or cardiologist, and directly I will give my input in infectious diseases aspect if there's any need. But unfortunately, we have no the facility for ID outpatient clinic. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a relatively new development in, in the United States as well to to have, uh, I'd say, probably in the past 15 years, much of specialty infectious disease has developed an outpatient practice as well. Uh, I think it really took off with HIV, but with transplant infectious disease, it developed more recently. Huh? So uh, should we uh, switch gears and talk about some cases? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Great. All right. Let me pull up the first case. So This is a case of an 81-year-old man with a history of heart transplant 20 years previously. He had been well until he wasn't, and that's when he developed an episode of prostatitis that was treated with ciprofloxacin. He now comes into the hospital with severe diarrhea, acute kidney injury, and of course, you suspect clostridium difficile. So the first question is, how is that evaluated in Israel?
1: Yeah so this is a common scenario this is a gentleman who is an octogenarian a gentleman who is a cardiac transplanted since 20 years and he has a recent exposure for recent exposure of antibiotics for prostatitis i guess that he received a long duration or long ciprofloxacin course so of course we suspect in this case a C-diff, and of course we should confirm our suspicion By sending a stool sample to test for CDEV. You know, we have different diagnostic approaches to diagnose microbiologically to diagnose CDEV. In my hospital, we do the three assays approach, starting with a high-sensitive test, the GDH test, an antigen test for Mm CDEV. And uh, simultaneously, we do an enzyme immunoassay for the toxin, the presence of the toxin. So if we have Both tests are positive, so we confirm the diagnosis that the patient had a C. diff microbiologically. And in cases, if there is any discrepancy between the uh, first two tests, that means if we have a positive GDH and negative um, ELISA or enzyme immunoassay for the toxin, we can proceed to the third assay, which is the PCR, looking for a C. diff isolate that had that had that capability to produce toxin. And if the PCR is positive, we can confirm that the patient has C. diff infection. Other centers start with PCR testing, but I think that starting with PCR testing could be or could give us an overdiagnosis. But this is our approach. You know, there's a different diagnostic approaches. And once we diagnose the C. diff infection in this patient, we should proceed i think to think about treatment
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay so so to choose the antibiotics we we should first of all to, we should determine the severity of the cdi you know we can categorize cdi uh, in different category, category groups and accordingly a specific treatment we can offer so in this and here again there's print and the variety in the definition of severity of CDI. You know, we have the traditional severity indices like white blood cell count and creatinine level. Uh, But you know, we have different definitions across the different guidelines. The IDSA guidelines say something, the gastroenterology guidelines say another thing. But in common, we have the white blood cell cell count and uh, creatinine level. Specifically, in this octogenarian fragile patient, I think that the traditional indices like WBC count could not give us a real and accurate mm-hmm. a picture. He might have a severe disease, but still his white blood cell count is normal. Mm-hmm. So I think in this specific population, we should just and choose another um, severity index like albumin level as we find in found in our work looking for risk factors for severity and mortality. And we found that albumin level, low albumin level is associated significantly with the severe disease. And wow. surprisingly, we find that WBCL count not reflect anything at, that had at no association with severe disease. So in you know, this patient, I should check that, I check her albumin or his albumin level From the start, to know if the patient is in a severe state. And in this case, I would, if I suppose the patient is in moderate to severe CDI severity, so so I can recommend him fidaxomycin. um, Fidaxomycin, which is a selective antibiotic and it's um, microbiota friendly uh, as compared with uh, vancomycin. So we can uh, use fidaxomycin. And we would comfortable with that that there will be a low uh, relapse rate after uh, fidaxomycin. And uh, in my center, we use uh, fidaxomycin several years ago uh, in an internal protocol for treating C. diff patients and immunocompromised patients. Many years before the introduction of the updated guidelines that mm-hmm. recommend in on fidaxomycin as a first line, because we. Found that these patients, the immunocompromised patients who are uh, with a C. diff infection, had a a high relapse rate. And specifically, the the vacuomycin treatment is associated with a high relapse rate. So, since that, since several years, our protocol is to give fidaxomycin straightforward from the first episode of CDI in immunocompromised patients. And I think they do well, but still, we should summarize the data and publish the uh, results. And so, um, fidaxomycin is is my favorite recommendation for this immunocompromised project patient.
0: Sure. Now, a little bit about where I'm sitting right now. So, my office is actually the office that used to belong to John Bartlett and my office was just across the hall from him. And then when he retired, I, 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 got this office. And John Bartlett was, was fond of saying that the paradox of vancomycin is that it's both the treatment and the cause of C. difficile. And, uh, so yeah. because it alters the, the gut flora. And, and, and I've taken the saying that the number one cause of, of recurrent C. difficile is Vancomycin. Vancomycin, yeah, And so uh, fidaxomycin is very attractive in that way because it is uh, narrower spectrum. It doesn't alter the gut flora as much as vancomycin. Many places do not use fidaxomycin because of the drug acquisition issue. In the United States, it's significantly more expensive than oral vancomycin. I think when you look at a whole system and the purchasing power of a whole system and the holistic view of, well, it may cost a little bit more to pay for fidaxomycin, but it costs a lot more in societal cost and, uh, and other costs to have a patient have recurrent disease than it makes sense, particularly in an immunocompromised patient.
1: Yeah, the the same thing is in Israel. Fidaxomycin is highly expensive, so we keep it for this population that can benefit from Fidaxomycin. We still give and prescribe vancomycin, but in this selected is a population we invest, we give Fidaxomycin. And the main aim for this action is to reduce the relapse rate for the CDF.
0: So one of the things that we experience in the United States is what's called prior authorization, which is uh, if you want to prescribe a drug, uh, so people, their drug benefits are from their insurance companies. And if you want to prescribe a drug that is not generally approved by the insurance company, then you need to fill out a form called the pre-authorization form. Is there something similar to that in the Israeli system when you want to prescribe fidaxomycin for a patient and you're afraid that the national insurance or the health ministry or whatever insurance they have won't pay for it?
1: Yeah, so fidaxomycin is prescribed only after the consultation of an ID specialist. Uh-huh. So no primary care can prescribe fidaxomycin, at least in my hospital. So we give fidaxomycin after an authorization from the ID consultant. Yeah, so this is a little bit the same.
0: Got it. And uh, so we talked about evaluation, approach to treatment, and... What about his risk for short and long-term outcomes? You've actually published quite a bit about outcomes in this patient population and some of the risk factors for different outcomes.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the, the prognosis of uh, older, fragile adults with C. diff is, is is, unfortunately is decimal. In that work that we have published in the last few years, we found that the 30-day mortality rate in this age group with a uh, CDF was a 33%. And in the one-year mortality rate was uh, approaching a 65%, so which is a hugely uh, oh. a high. Uh, and uh, we the main purpose for this work is to look for uh, risk factors for this uh, for uh, this uh, outcomes for that mortality and severe disease. And we found that that I said, as I said, albumin level was strongly associated with mortality. And the important point that we can get from this statistics that we should do our best to prevent the disease because once the disease inside, so we know that we have a decimal prognosis. So we have to do our best and do an effort, a lot of effort to prevent this disease by lowering the prescription of broad spectrum antibiotics and to cut antibiotics that were prescribed um, intentionally. Uh, So by this small means, we can do a lot by reducing that and prevent that disease. Okay.
0: (laughs) Now, so just to push on this a little bit further, so some people may have low albumin because and and, and they're going to do poorly because their general condition, frailty, et cetera, has led to the low albumin. And then on top of that, the C. difficile comes in. So my image of that is that they're already walking toward the basement and that the C. difficile pushes them down the stairs a little bit further.
1: You, Yeah. Yeah. So this is an indirect indication, the hypoalbuminemia. It, it reflects the general fragility of the patient, the poor uh, energy uh, balance in, 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 the, in these patients. So I think so that the low albumin level is an indirect indicator that of the poor condition and so that C. diff push itself in these patients. And so I think that this, this is the proper explanation why hypoalbuminemia is associated with severe disease and mortality, high mortality.
0: Sure. In terms of recurrences, so you're trying to reduce the recurrences by uh, giving a more narrow spectrum drug like fidaxomicin. do you ever use the monoclonal antibody, bezlotuximab?
1: Yeah, so the, this is a very good question. Unfortunately, bezlotuximab, which is the, the fully humanized monoclonal antibody directed against the toxin for the C. diff and proved to reduce the relapse rates in these patients Unfortunately, we have no bislatoxomab in Israel. It's not mm-hmm. available. But I think we should bring that drug, that therapy for these patients who had a very high risk for relapse. This 85, 81 year old immunocompromised patient, I think he will do a relapse sooner. So mm-hmm. it's um, to prevent the relapses is to give a fidaxomycin if the patient received vancomycin in the first episode. So, in the second episode of CDI, I, could, I would recommend uh, fidaxomycin. If a patient had in the first episode fidaxomycin, I recommend, again, to give fidaxomycin in an extended pulse, you know, to extend that 10-days regimen all over that 25 days, an extended extended pulse fidaxomycin approach, and as a least, last resort option, I would, would offer a fecal microbiota transplantation, you know we have the theoretical safety concerns by transmitting multi-drug resistant mm-hmm. organisms through transplanting the microbiota. But again, in these say uh, patients who have no any chance or any option to be to get rid from the if from this seed, if I will offer FMT as a last resort option. So these are the options available to do to decrease the relapse for this sure.
0: patient. Yeah, so the fecal transplant situation in the United States is constantly in flux. Sometimes it's available, sometimes it's not. But one of the situations that to me is very intriguing are the, particularly women, that dance between recurrent urinary tract infections and recurrent C. the facile. And I, I sort of fantasize that I can give them a uh, stool transplant and almost like hit control alt delete on their GI system so that they both lose whatever organism is causing their UTIs that may be stickier than other a, a sticky E. coli or a sticky Klebsiella they can lose that one and lose the C. difficile. The uh, yeah. I think it will still need to be an area of of research, but that is sort of my uh, my hope. Yeah, great. yeah, And then in terms of, so sometimes one of the things that I recommend for patients, and and it is somewhat evidence-based, is kefir or kefir, which is a Middle Eastern, Bulgarian, Balkan yogurt. Uh Have you found any, uh, again, it's sort of a probiotic. Have you found in the population that that you deal with that there is any cultural uh, remedies that people use as probiotics to prevent or to treat recurrent C. difficile?
1: I don't aware for these same types of remedies, but uh, kefir, I I have no experience with kefir, but a lot of the primary care physicians use the, the, this remedy for recurrent UTIs, and there's uh-huh. there yeah so and they are optimistic with this remedy. They believe that they do do th- good thing for these uh, women with the with the recurrent UTIs.
0: Again, I guess there. I guess a UTI has to start somewhere, and the organism starts in the GI tract. So, if you can balance out the organism from the uh, GI tract or from the uh, vaginal colonization, then perhaps you're. you're colonized with something less, has less UTI capacity. There is a study in clinical infectious disease from a few years back from a physician in uh, Minnesota where he had done a pulse taper of vancomycin and kefir, kefir, and and it was effective. One of the problems with kefir in this country, at least, is that the amount that you have to take uh, over a long period of time, it actually gets quite expensive to do because, uh, and and, while the insurance company or the health ministry will pay for oral vancomycin, they won't pay for yeah. your yogurt drink. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Great idea. Uh, yeah. So should we skip over to uh move over to the next case or is there more okay. that you would like to share about C defacile? Maybe your research with platelets, was that something that you found that was interesting?
1: Yeah, so we we we, we have we have several studies regarding CDF Because Our tertiary hospital has a problem with this organism we call it in Hebrew Danudnik. It's Anik. a very annoying, yeah, a very annoying Anik. organism. It's a sticky, and we can we therefore we do a lot of research to try to find a way and to elucidate and to find risk factors and try to uh, try to prevent this infection. So it's a very interesting organism, and therefore. If you see the these publications on on CDEF from My Center, because it's a real problem, and I think we will continue uh, do such research to improve our practice in this area.
0: Terrific! So let's move on to the next case, which is going to pull it up in a second, and it is a forty five year old man with history, sorry, 45-year-old woman with history of end-stage adrenal disease due to FSGS kidney transplant one year ago. She now comes into the hospital with fevers, chills, leukocytosis, tenderness over the kidney graft. She's not hypotensive. The UA shows presence of pyuria. And so in, in Israeli practice, what is the uh, go-to initial therapy for a patient with urinary tract infection who is sick enough to be in the hospital?
1: Yeah, uh, this is a common scenario. This is uh, a young lady who is kidney transplanted that came with a clinical picture of a uh, graft binephritis with signs of sepsis or severe sepsis. So our approach is to give her an IV broad-spectrum antibiotics like pibdazo or carbapenem. Mm-hmm. And if it is available, I would do a quick check uh, in the uh, their microbiological records to look for a previous positive hearing culture that would direct me to give a specific therapy but in general we start with a broad spectrum antibiotics which is an iv and after the i after the mm-hmm. uh, susceptibility activity of the organism that I, that will be available in the next 1 to 2 days i will direct my therapy specifically to the organism and i would switch her to oral therapy if it is, if that organism is susceptible and that's it. So I will give an IV broad spectrum antibiotic for one to two days after the patient gets stable and be able to take any oral medication. And according to the isolate clinical, the organism that is isolated from the urine or the blood, I will give an oral therapy. But the the atiogram of my center is that not uh, innocent. The organisms, hmm. yeah, the organisms we have, like E. coli or are uh, generally resistant to quinolones. Uh, Thirty to forty percent of the enterobacteriaceae organisms are resistant to is, to uh, ciprofloxacin. So, and unfortunately, in my times, we should continue the IV therapy and discharge the patients uh, home to continue receiving an iv antibiotics as in an outpatient setting and mm-hmm. for that we have a very efficient system which is called a, a home cure iv mm-hmm. drug companies that that give this facility and yeah, iv antibiotics in the outpatient setting and we do that so regarding the duration of therapy so you know we, we have no consensus how uh, what is the optimal uh, Duration for therapy for such um, case and uh, a uh, graft pulmonary fibrosis in, in this transplanted patient, but we tend to give a shorter duration, like a ten to fourteen days maximum, because again we also test and we, we found that in our work we we published in the last two years there in this study we compared the impact of. The duration of therapy for graft versus nephritis and its impact on the outcomes of these patients, and we have we found no difference between that group that received a short duration therapy, like six to eleven days, mm-hmm. uh, versus the longer duration therapy, which is the. Yeah, uh, 21 days. So in terms of uh, mortality or severe disease or any relapse, so we, we give uh, the shorter duration 10 days, maximum 40, 14 days. It's good enough for uh, this kind of infection.
0: Great. So yeah, one of the questions that comes up frequently is if the patient is back to bacteremic, Are you comfortable switching to an oral antibiotic, particularly if the source of the bacteremia was from a urine? So it's not like they have primary bacteremia. And if yes, do you have, how do you feel about antibiotics that traditionally have had low levels of bioavailability or lower levels like amoxicillin or amoxicillin clavulinic?
1: So if I am going to give an oral antibiotic, I keep in mind that that drug should be a highly bioav- bioavailable drug. So I will give like give quinolones mm-hmm. and I would be more than confident to to give an oral therapy for bacteremic patient, especially if she is quickly stabilized and she now is able mm-hmm. to take the oral medications. And I know that the source of this bacterium is a urine, not a primary unknown source. So, and I have an oral therapy, which is a highly bioavailable, and good that reach a good concentration also in the blood. Uh, and so, I will it will give such um, a, a high bioavailable um, drug, uh, not uh, amoxicillin or um, trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole. So I will choose a high bioavailable oral therapy, and I think it's, they will do great. Great.
0: And then when you were talking about the initial broad-spectrum antibiotics, you did not mention cefepime, which is one of our main antibiotics that we use here at Hopkins. Was there a reason you didn't mention cefepime? Is that a problem at your institution?
1: Yeah, it's a problem for all the countries. Cepham is not one of the uh, armamentarium of our antibiotic catalogues. We have don't uh, we have no cepham in Israel. It's not uh, in yours. So our antibiotics are peptazo and carbapenems. Sometimes we give am- amikacin, aminoglycosides instead. Mm-hmm. With the with, especially in uh, cases where the activity level are normal. And uh, you know in for a shorter duration can it, it's it's a great narrow spectrum antibiotics that it's perfect for yeah. the urine and the bacteremia. Uh, so these are the main antibiotics we use as as an empirical therapy for such a case.
0: And then in terms of some of the fancier and newer ones, ceftazidime avibactam. Or some of the carbapenem uh, inhibitor combinations are those available in Israel? Is this yeah, so you keep them under glass and you break only when you need to.
1: Yeah, we we yeah. have this. It doesn't it Avibactam, and because we have a lot of uh, we have many cases that we are encounter with, like carbapenem producing organisms that the and so reginosa organism all are susceptible for. Siftazim avibactam, the only drug that we can offer. So we have this antibiotic uh, for these cases. So we have siftazim avibactam.
0: Great. Well, we only have another minute or so left before the Zoom kicks me out. So I'm going to ask you one of the tougher questions. Uh, In the uh, English Premier League, do you have a uh, favorite team? In
1: what? (laughs) In the English Premier League. Ah, I'm not <laughs> a football fan, but I guess you are. <laughs> um,
0: I'm a sports fan, so uh I, I probably couldn't get very far talking baseball with
1: you, so uh I was Yeah. The Red Sox, yeah that Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. I see, yeah, I see some tweets for you encouraging
0: <laughs> this thing. Well, it's been wonderful speaking with you, and I'm going to uh, cherish this conversation. It's been absolutely wonderful, and I I hope to uh, have additional conversations with you in the future and ideally meet you in person. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care.